0: Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in Curriculum and Instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the anchor.fm website or the anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening and here's today's episode.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's Transformative Talk episode. I'm Sessad, joined by Sunny and Casey, and we are your hosts. We have a very gay episode for you. Queers in the 80s and 90s, TikTok, drag queens. In this episode, we're going to talk about the inclusion, or lack thereof, of queer theory in curriculum and instruction. First, Casey will give us a breakdown of how queer theory became more represented in the curriculum, stemming from the 80s and 90s. And provide an analysis of the evolution of three derogatory terms aimed at LGBT communities. Can we use queer? Why are LGBT slurs associated with deviance? Did Candy Muse deserve to be in the top two of season 13 of RuPaul's Drag Race? Just kidding. Then, Sunny shares how TikTok is allowing conversations surrounding queer and critical racial theory to flourish, particularly for young people. Following our commercial break, we're telling you all about the perfection that is Drag Queen story hour, and ultimately, we'll engage in a difficult discourse on the recent anti-trans legislation in Texas. Packed episode, right? Let's kick things off with Casey.
2: Queer theory is a more modern theory compared to other theories in relation to social justice. It really only emerged in the 1990s, which is actually really crazy to think about how recent that is. You know, a lot of us were born before that. I know I was kind of grew up in the 90s. So it's crazy to think that, you know, that's how recent that is compared to a lot of the other theories in the social justice kind of realm. Um, Some of the major theorists that have contributed to queer theory have been Gail Rubin. Michael Foucault, Eve Sedgwick, and Judith Butler are also uh, big contributors. Queer theory kind of they stray away from like defining things precisely, as serious because they do not they don't want to like uh, limit the evolution of queer theory. And, I, and my take on that is because I think sexuality is pretty complex and it's changing. Uh, a lot of queer theory's roots come from uh, feminist theories, so queer theory is kind of a way to like you know, investigate that from a research standpoint. You know, because in history being gay was, you know, against norms and was almost automatically looked at as a deviant act. So like there's been more exposure and hopefully that's led to more acceptance. You know, we're going to get into social media in a little bit here because things have changed with social media. So, and there's so many different facets now of how information communication travels. Um, well, one big thing that comes from queer theory is this idea of heteronormativity. Uh, it stems from queer theory, and it's this idea that heterosexuality is, is the normal sexual orientation, and, and much like, like whiteness and like white privilege, it's kind of this um, thing that's used as a form of power over, over everyone, really, but it's, it's very similar to that, the whiteness and white privilege and the, the power play that's used. Uh, heterosexuality. Normal is the normal standpoint. If you're if you're not heterosexual, then that's not normal. So that's where heteronormativity is, and that it comes from queer theory. A lot of the deviance comes goes all the way back to Willard and his work and the sociology of teaching, which was in 1932. And it's it's really bizarre to think back now. I mean, he popularized this idea that homosexual teachers would spread and they would infect their students with homosexuality back then principals were like literally instructed to fire teachers just based on signs of being gay not even that they were just that even if they acted like in an interview they were like told not to hire them or they found out because of this infection and and I even wonder did they you know did somebody like um, Willard really believe that these that it would infect him because it, it just kind of almost feels to me like it's a fear tactic because he doesn't like you know homosexuality in that way of it and maybe he, that was just kind of a play on words like we see today in politics that's just kind of a thought but so he he kind of caused this deviance to kind of transpire into where we are today with queer theory where we're trying to advance past it and have a legitimate conversation and based on you know going through all the willards and this and this kind of way of thinking you move on to like what teachers have to deal with who are homosexual or even straight, you know, and what what they say and do in their classrooms and are they able to talk about it? If if you're a gay teacher, you know, do you tell your students? Do you make a reference to my, you know, my husband, do you say partner? Like what do you what do you do? Because I know I would imagine, you know, you know, and we hear that from teachers, there's there's consequences. We have parents, we have faculty. We have administration that are against these ideas and the very fact that they find out that maybe they have their students being taught by their child actually is being taught by a gay teacher it might cause disruption and oftentimes sadly teachers may choose to not be who they are in that space you know and pretend to be something else just out of fear of these consequences if you are a straight teacher I mean, especially in a state like Texas, and um, there's a lot of legislation that we will get into later. But there are certain states that are really against a- a- any really mentioning of of um, LGBTQ teachings. And so, if you're straight, you're kind of put in this position where if you can't relate to it, you just kind of turn your head the other way. And it's like, why get into something that could give me uh, undesirable consequences that you know I mean, that's really not who I am anyway and sadly it shouldn't be that way you know teachers straight or um, homosexual should feel comfortable and it should be a part of the curriculum and, and the AIDS movement and that facet of it and now it's stalled the progress and queer theory and you know these things should be a part of it and teachers I don't you know should probably shouldn't be or they shouldn't be actually in that position because there's this like I said sense of not wanting to say the wrong thing. And it does depend on region and regulations. I mean, which like I said, we'll get into later, um, but like a state like California, it's we had talked about this previously in our classroom and, and how they actually, it's like mandated, I believe in their curriculum. So you, it is kind of relative to where you are. Queer was definitely used as a derogatory term. So it's kind of interesting that queer is kind of being brought back into a theory that's not intended to really, you know, to suppress. It's more queer theories, uh, like we talked about before is it's set up to explore it and research it and shed light on it and ask these questions that we weren't asking before. And that's the, you know, in, on an academic sense, getting to like, you know, the derogatory terms and whatnot. When I was growing up, there were terms like, fag, faggot, queer, gay, using my childhood and I remember peers, friends, classmates would throw these terms around and they were used as derogatory terms. So immediately if you were called that, you heard someone called that, it was a negative thing. And, and often when you heard that, you didn't want to associate or feel that way. So you would it would kind of as a male student, it would make you want to be more masculine and drive yourself away. And I mean I feel like these derogatory words have like further cemented the fear of being homosexual, because if you are a homosexual student and you see this going on, like I saw in my childhood, I can't imagine wanting to be yourself in that space when you know you're gonna get that basically harassment. Um, and then even on a heterosexual level, you shouldn't be receiving that harassment either because it's just further dividing you away from something that's completely natural, that it's not a choice. It's, you know, people are born this way you know all these factors with the teachers being fired at risk losing their jobs or being gay and other workplaces of course with similar circumstances uh, but any workplace with the derogatory nature of the way homosexual words have been used in the past, the media's representation of homosexuality. I feel like they, they all create these mechanisms that just reinforce this distance from homosexuality. And if you are gay, you have this, you had this fear or you still do of the consequences and a lot of different facets of life, whether that's family, your job, education. That leads me to to Sonny, who's going to speak a little bit about um, social media and how that plays into the power of words.
1: Words do hold weight. We tell young people that all the time. But what opportunities do we provide them to get it right? And are these opportunities culturally relevant to them as our students? Sunny is going to dive into two TikToks and she's gonna use them as an example for the power and hold that social media has on young people, particularly LGBT youth. And she's gonna share how they can start a larger conversation on queer and critical racial theory in your classroom.
3: So as Casey was just talking about, um, the idea of labels and language uh, have become so uh, impactful in the in the way that we talk about the queer community and, and ourselves as individuals. This growth has taken place over decades. And it's interesting to kind of look at particular words, words like gay or queer, the way that they've kind of woven in and out of acceptance and, and popularity and, and their meaning. A lot of times the discourse on these things um, was mostly happening in academic spaces, right? That queer theory was, has always been something that's applicable to everyday life. Um, Things like, or ideas like feminism and queer theory and critical race theory are all theories that have a direct relation to how people live their lives on an everyday basis. And that's only becoming more and more true as queer communities take to the internet and take to social media. These things aren't just happening among adults, they're happening with progressively younger and younger people. And that has pro cons, like a lot of teenagers are entering this queer theory discourse, kind of at a at a stage in their development where they're still finding themselves. So some of these conversations are very developed and very highbrow and and on the other hand, some of them are not, and they're very much coming from a place of still finding oneself. I find this a good thing though. I think watching the way that discourse and theory evolves on online spaces is fascinating. There are so many intelligent people out there saying really interesting things and taking apart theory in, in new and engaging ways and it's really exciting. So one of the TikToks I saw recently, TikTok is the, the place for young queers these days. I don't know if y'all know that, get yourself a TikTok. One of our media, uh, media experts has a TikTok about coming out and about coming out narratives.
4: There's this really interesting sentiment that's like been building in a lot of online queer fandomy spaces that coming out narratives are played out and it's time for characters to just be queer. And I'm not mad at that conclusion, but I challenge the idea that the reason we're sick of coming out narratives is because of like market saturation. I honestly just think that fundamentally, the mythology of coming out is structurally unsound. Like Hollywood constructs coming out as this grand assertion of a settled identity, and it makes sense because it's easy, like fictional shorthand, when a character can declare themselves truthfully to the world they've actualized, right? It's just that queer identity is a lot more complicated than that, and in my experience, coming out as like the overture of that identity not the finale and positioning it as the climactic thing is so weird it's like ending the movie when spider-man puts on that first shitty pajama costume like it captures intent but it misses all those clumsy experimentations with public versus private expression and the weight of the cultural figure of the hero and the agency spidey exerts over those forces and negotiating an authentic self queer coming of age is literally like transgressive creation you get to remake yourself in your own image but these hollywood motherfuckers are like i think the most important and meaningful thing about this is that now you can tell the truth to me the way she talks about it she's bringing in so many unique elements of
3: the queer theory conversation we're talking about reclaiming our narrative for ourselves we're talking about the language and how we want to be perceived we're talking about the ways that stories are told in representation Um, one of the things she says is there's this idea that coming out narratives are overused and she says like well that's not true and she's right we really only got like four of them. <laughs> and there, you can't say that this, this idea is, is overused when, when it's just not out there that often. But on the other hand, the, the ways, in we construct, that we construct these stories, as exciting it is, uh, as it is to see representation, these stories don't always connect with us the way that we want them to. Um, there's a part that's missing. And so she talks about how the part that's missing is a misunderstanding of what coming out is. Coming out isn't always um, the end of the journey. Most of the time, it's it's very much just the start. It's just the beginning of someone learning to find their place and, and understand understand who they are and present who they are. And as that presentation happens, people really find, find new ways of, of understanding themselves, which is very exciting for a queer person. It's just the beginning. Uh, Another TikTok I wanted to mention is is a gentleman who introduces the term Latine.
5: Let's talk about the pronunciation of Latinx and Latine. What I'm seeing a lot of people discuss is how hard it is to pronounce Latinx versus Latine, which is completely valid, and here's why. Latinx was meant as a protest graphic. It was in conjunction with terms like Latinos Americanos and Hispanos. They would cross out the O in all of those, and that was just meant to be a big fuck you to machismo. Latine was introduced as a word that was meant to be spoken, unlike Latinx, which was just a graphic. The E at the end of Latina can also be used in conjunction with other words that would be normally used to gender people, like, um, bienvenidas a todes, or, les personas, or, um, really anything that ends in an O or an A, you can add an E. This is, again, not to force you to use Latinx or Latine. It's literally just to respect non-binary and gender non-conforming people. That's literally it. And people that don't identify as Latino.
3: Even in literature today, Latinx is a very common way to refer to people of Hispanic or, or, or uh, Latin origin um, while being gender inclusive. But Latinx is a weird word. Uh, and so he kind of explains this alternative net and how it can be used linguistically in a, in a more natural way. It's it's really exciting to watch kids uh, and adults engage in these online spaces. We always have to be careful because the internet is a scary big place and it's just as easy to fall down a rabbit hole that you don't want to go in. But, but I think the internet can be a really beautiful place for people to learn about themselves and to experience queer culture in safe ways. And it's fascinating to see how how the academic trickle down effect does work in some ways. How we're able to have intelligent, highbrow conversations about queer theory in really personal, day to day ways, talking about how these things affect us on a on a daily basis and on a one to one level. Uh, I wanted to end our conversation about social media and the queer experience with an internet post. It's not a TikTok, but the quote is. Cis people who legitimately question their gender and decided that they were cis are cis, but they're not cis about it. I respect that. This is of course a joke, but it's unpacking this very real idea that when people engage in questioning their sexuality or questioning their gender presentation or orientation, that creates a tone in themselves of acceptance and understanding for people who are queer in any kind of way. Uh, And that's a good thing. And even if you decide after all your exploration, actually, I totally am cisgender, I totally am heterosexual, you're still going to walk away from that experience of personal exploration, a more complex and more empathetic person. And that can really only be good to have more complex and empathetic people out there in the world. If this conversation has moved you to get on TikTok or to start reading up on queer theory or to start questioning yourself or the way that others present themselves, then Uh, we're happy to have done that work today.
1: After the break, get ready to fall even more in love with drag queens as we showcase a group of drag queens who are changing the idea of storytime. And after, we'll have a discussion on the anti-trans legislation that's plaguing the Texas legislature. This and more on Transformative Talk. Welcome back. You probably don't associate drag queens with storytime, but after this episode, we hope that you do. Drag Queen Story Hour is just what it sounds like. Drag Queens reading stories to children in libraries, schools, and bookstores. It captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood and gives these kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models who, above all, are going to teach them about the importance of self love. There are chapters in California, like San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles. In New York, uh, in Georgia, particularly in Atlanta, Texas has a chapter in El Paso, North Carolina has some in Charlotte, uh, Miami, cities like Miami, Boston, Portland, New Orleans, uh, they also have chapters as well. We saw a short film titled The Drag Queen's Reading to Kids in Libraries and had a discussion to some of the highlights. You can find the film for free on YouTube. So what exactly is it that these queens do?
6: I think kids don't always know what to make of us. Things like gender are like the last thing on their mind.
0: Hi, I'm Miss B. I am the directing for Directing Story Hour this hour. Welcome! When I first heard about it, I was just like, where can I sign up? and I was part of the first few girls who started Drag Queen Story Hour in New York City. So, what do you think a drag queen is? A queen of dragons. A queen of dragons. We really are. We entertain, we lip sync, we are funny. We're like clowns, but prettier. And I get to hang out with people like you. Isn't that awesome? Yes.
6: Julian
7: is a mermaid by Jessica Love. People associate drag queens with adult entertainment, so they think if it's a drag queen, it can't be appropriate for children. And we have to really often explain to people, this is a program designed for children. It's a drag queen reading children's books, singing children's songs. There's nothing adult about it. I think often it's hard for people to just kind of get beyond their preconceived notion of what a drag queen does.
6: Kids, they're imaginative, they're all about play. They haven't been baked into, you know, society's norms and expectations. So, I think to them, things like being fluid with their identities comes really naturally. Shoes on the drag queen go stomp, stomp, stomp. I believe that hate
0: isn't inherited, it's taught. So if we can teach these kids how to love and accept everybody, they'll definitely be the best generation that we could ever ask for.
1: As with all great queer things, Drag Queen Story Hour unfortunately has been met with controversy and backlash, particularly from religious groups. So why is there a controversy or a backlash with Drag Queen Story Hour?
2: They already have their rights.
5: But they don't have a right to take my tax dollars and impose their
1: doctrines on little kids and get them all
5: confused and screwed
1: up. The kids are all messed up. We need things to stay
2: just the way they were supposed to be. The kind of change we need is for people to start listening to the creator
5: we need. Zero to five
2: years old.
4: You know, literally the, the sign says on is zero to, to five
5: story about gender fluidity. Can you tell us about what's happening outside?
0: Well, apparently there's some guy who wants to date me and he doesn't know how, so he's flirting through negativity. No. Um, (laughs) There's some backlash of people who are against the program and um, would like to see it shut down or not see it at the library at all.
7: Storytime at a Brooklyn public library prompting a protest this morning and it's who is reading to those children is what parents are upset about. We have
0: a drag queen, which is a man dressed as a woman, coming to read to children, not about Cat in the Hat, about gender fluidity.
6: And the thing that I don't know, scares me the most is just like in our crazy gun culture that like I'm sort of afraid, you know, that of what could happen if some crazy person came to one of our events.
7: It's the second protest we've had in New York City in 3 years but lots of the organizers in other places have hundreds of protesters at all their events.
1: Ultimately, the program is put on for children and for families. So how do they feel about Drag Queen Story Hour?
6: They look like um, like mermaids and queens.
5: Are we done yet?
6: I think there's just something about us being larger than life and that's really what they react to. You get a lot of oohs, ahs, wows, and what's that? <laughs> to kids, I think, you know, drag queens are princesses come to life or superheroes. One of the kids said,
5: a drag queen is someone who dresses fabulous, fancy. And I was like, oh, you're correct. I like how she added the sea creatures and makes it extra, extra pretty to me. Yay.
4: She loved it. She's never sat through a story time before without crying. And there was so much shiny stuff to look at. All of my kids have this flair for drama and really enjoy theater and dressing up. And I want to encourage that. Flash rainbows in the sun. They're setting a great
6: example as being different and there's nothing wrong with that. When I came
3: here today, I saw all the kids love it and cheering after every book.
1: And what do you think The Pigeon wants to do now?
3: Juggling should go on and never stop because I think it's a really cool program. like how they read different types of books every time. Like sometimes
1: they
6: read books about feelings, sometimes about nature, sometimes fiction, sometimes
7: nonfiction.
6: but I just like how people in the books find a
1: way to stop any war that might happen.
6: Not only queer families needing queer-centric event to bring their family to, but so many straight families who are progressive are always looking for ways to introduce their kid to the larger world and raise children that are thoughtful and that value diversity.
1: The seats on the bus go,
6: swish, 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 all through the town. I was just talking to these girls downstairs. None of them asked me, you know, am I a boy? They had a lot of questions about how did I get my hair to be purple or how do I get glitter to stick to my face or where did I get all these clothes? But, you know, they just kind of take me at face value. And I think that's really exciting. I just want to
1: mention queer theory is about so much more than just wanting to turn kids gay that is absolutely not the case at all what it actually is is a way to apply concepts that have been practiced by queer communities such as acceptance self-love the importance of educating others um, bringing those ideas into the classroom who better to do that than drag queens not one kid when asked what they wanted to be when they grow up by a drag queen said they wanted to be a drag queen the only difference the drag queen made was that they gave them more confidence to believe that they could reach their dream.
7: I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between sex and gender, and they think that we're teaching three-year-olds about sex. Do
6: you know where you want to be when you grow up? Um,
7: I want to
3: be a lot of things. Number one, scientist
5: number two, ninja. number three, right.
6: Oh, that's amazing. And I believe you
5: can do all three of those things, okay? Just make sure you continue on with school and don't let anyone ever tell you you cannot do it because you could do it. Okay? High five, Dylan.
0: So when I put on my wig on, my dress, like, I'm ready to go save the world. So what do we think of Drag Queen Story Hour?
3: Yeah, I don't know if y'all were watching my face but I went through like all of the human emotions watching that video there's so much to love about it and I think even the scary parts that they bring up like part of the video is is talking about um the people who are protesting against their program even in that those moments of like fear or those moments of anger or frustration like I I think that the video did such a good job of being of unpacking them and and finding finding the bright spots Uh, it's so cute
2: yeah and I I I felt the same it was like a super informative because I always have this belief like when you get into especially outside of just you know being lesbian being a female as being being a gay man there's like there's so much more to the spectrum and so when you watch these videos I think it's it's so it's so enlightening because uh, I think there's so much for the general public to learn and understand and not just assume that it's like a man parading around, you know, wanting to be a female for these kind of like malice purposes. And that's kind of that's just and that's the way like you have the media that pushes it and stuff. But in, in itself, it's actually like an actual genuine expression. And there's no there's really no deviance or like negativity behind it.
1: They also mentioned how they are they've not been stained by society's idea of what sex and gender is what they need to strive towards, how they should behave, how they should act. Really, a lot of those instances haven't necessarily come yet. and many of them did seem like they had very, you know tolerant parents. So that that obviously does seem to help. but I, I like that point where it's like there's still this purity that exists where they they don't necessarily think right off the gate as they're going through the door of drag queen story hour. I'm so excited to learn about gender fluidity today. You know, I'm so excited to learn about my own sex and gender. They're not thinking about that at all and it's interesting how that was also the main argument that the protesters had one of them saying like it's not like cat in the hat you know like it's books on gender fluidity and they're all mad and the other lady saying how the kids are all screwed up in the head and then you see the types of books that they're reading and it's not it's not that at all it's not that at all they're reading such a diverse array of books and then on top of that, the kids, to me, they did not sound screwed up at all. I mean, that kid wanted to be a writer, a scientist. He he was learning how to stop wars. The kids, to me, did not sound screwed up. You could even tell in the video, like, they're trying to explain to the guy, hey, no, this is what's going on, and he's just speaking over it. He doesn't care. So sometimes you're like, man, these, some of these people are just, like, beyond reason. The best way you can teach kids right off the bat is by modeling at first, like, what it is. You know, you're going to talk the talk, then you better know how to walk it and so like i think that that's very it's something that you can see there like they're they're basically putting on the show and they're like yeah this is this is what it means to like love yourself and to also embody all of these ideas that we're trying to to get these kids to learn so i don't yeah, know it's, it's really nice
3: knows better how to walk than a queen so they're walking right very exactly period
1: <laughs> period there are they, they know where that line is you know they they understand where that line is and i think we've brought this up as well um where like we understand like drag queens trans women like these were these are all figures early on in like the gay liberation movement that were the educators and like the ones who kind of carried on the stories of these communities as generations passed and so like they at the end of the day are educators like they have something to teach people and so I think that you know what better way to do it than by reading books to, to young kids and just teaching them, like, how to be themselves and how to just, like, love themselves and and actually explore those themes through through literature.
3: It's interesting you're talking about, like, a queen knowing where that line is because of that history of education passed through the drag world. But it's also interesting when we're talking about, like, in the first part of this podcast, Casey was talking about, like, those saying the wrong things as a teacher. Like, I think as educators, we have a lot to learn from the way that this program is run and the way that it's contextualized, because I think these are questions that we have all the time. Like, you know, what is appropriate for me to teach? How do I explain queer ideas in an age-appropriate way? This idea of sexuality is not sex is one that we're still struggling to explain to people. And so it's really fascinating watching them deal with this with incredible grace, like there's no question to them. They're they're doing it so well, finding this line perfectly, making an age-appropriate program that still sends the message that they want to send. I think a lot of teachers, preschool through graduate school, struggle with these questions and and could learn a lot from this program. Mm-hmm. It's very yep. exciting.
1: Up next, we break down recent anti-trans legislation that has been plaguing the Texas legislature.
3: Currently in Texas, there are a number of bills in action, but a few of specific concern that are targeting transgender children, as well as healthcare workers and families. First one that we're going to unpack is SB 29. This bill uh, has been discussed in the wider news. It's also one that has uh, mirroring components in other states. It bans trans youth to sports unless they comply with their quote-unquote, assigned gender at birth. In fact, school administrators will have the right to request birth certificate proof in order for kids to participate in sports. So students won't be able to play on the team, which aligns their preferred gender presentation. It's currently in committee. The other two bills we have do have mirrors in both the House and Senate, but we'll talk specifically about SB 1311. This bill prohibits a physician or other healthcare provider from performing gender-affirming transition care. So that includes surgeries, that includes medication, that includes puberty blockers or anything like that. So that bill, like I said, is currently in committee and it has a mirror in both House and Senate. So that one is chugging along quite quickly. There is a third bill of concern, SB 1646. This bill, much like the last one, Limits the ability of healthcare providers to supply a life-saving transition-related healthcare. It also extends to parents and guardians, and it categorizes these forms of medical care as child abuse, which means that any parent who seeks this kind of care for their child could be accused of child abuse. So those are the three that we're looking at today. If you would like more information on all of the anti-LGBTQ legislation currently taking place in Texas, check out equalitytexas.org. Their legislative bill tracker has information on all of these. Just for our conversation for these three, when we talk about these bills, we have a lot of things to worry about.
1: I think it would justify the otherness that the, the sort of narrative has tried to push of trans youth and um and like just trans educators and on top of that like lgbt educators how it can kind of push a very damaging narrative about lgbt students and teachers and also just how the experience of those transgender students um, is going to be specifically because we see higher levels of depression and anxiety in students that are transgender in K through 12 education um, than most other groups. And so I think that that's also something that comes up as as a worry, right?
3: I think if we're talking about a hypothetical like micro scenario, right? Like let's say we have a trans kid on a basketball team right now. What does it say to that kid when that kid is no longer able to play? But what does it say to their teammates also, right? Like what kind of message gets sent to those teammates when they see that this kid is singled out that there's actual legislation that limits their ability to participate with them. Like what kind of narrative are you able to walk away with? Like potentially you can walk away with a narrative that is like, that's wrong. Like, I hate that that happened to my teammate, but it could also just as easily be like, oh, my teammates different, my teammates other. What about my teammate did these legislators see that I should be like afraid of or or against? I think that's very scary.
1: And there's a danger to accepting that as truth, you know. There's a danger to students uh, being able to accept that as truth, and that's also why I think the question that we pose to the class as well for the facilitation of like what do we, what can we do about it, but also like what can students do even amongst themselves, like from peer to peer as well. Like how can you build that tolerance amongst each other? Because yeah, like what what does that say to the person on the team that's been picking on that transgender athlete? You know, mm-hmm. it only is going to justify whatever, you know, bullying they were doing in that regard. It's I know that there's there's a big scientific framework that they're trying to apply to some of these bills, which again is BS they're, they're basically saying that, you know, UIL should be using the same rules that the NCAA uses, which are based on testosterone levels, or, you know, like how much of these certain hormone levels does this athlete have? that would then put them into whichever division like men's division women's division and that's what they're using as the marker but with with UIL, like it, it's basically like a bathroom bill 2.0 right there's there's definitely like some insidiousness there coming from the gop to try and set president you know for other things um, especially for trans youth, Texas is the one that has um, that has put in the the largest number of anti-trans legislation in the entire country. It also just goes to show you, trans people. I believe there was a a, a number cited. There was like two. They're two percent of the population. Why do we have such a disparity in legislation that is geared towards trans people? That's not even to protect them or support them. It's literally to marginalize them.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say that I, I totally agree with you. I, I kind of feel like it feels like it just uh like a full out attack, like on on that segment of the population, and probably not even for the reasons kind of like you alluded to, that they're actually, like, trying to go after it just seems like they're just picking apart every little thing to just go after it. And like you said, I do think it It affects, I guess, like the perspective of of it. Um, Because from me, from personal experience, and I'm 35, so this must have been, oh gosh, middle school year. So I guess, what is it, over 20 years ago, I actually had, um, we actually had a transgender uh, football player. But I honestly, I don't remember uh, any of us at that time. Like, there was no, I don't think we were, nobody was uncomfortable. It was just very natural, I think, for our whole football team to accept it. And it's crazy to think back on that. So when I see this legislation, it is sad because it it put, it puts a light on it in a bad way when, like, 20 years ago, we didn't question it. And it was fine for all of us. And this kind of stuff, it may actually create more of a divide where otherwise young children would just except them the, um, transgender students in their sports. But now with this hanging over and the birth certificate, all this red tape, it's just going to create the negativity around something that naturally sh- probably wouldn't have that negativity. So that's just something I, I kind of drew, drew on from my own experience.
3: How are you, <laughs> you going to look me in the eye and telling me that you're going to measure the testosterone level of a five-year-old that that sounds crazy, right? I'm not crazy. Like
1: (laughs) Um, the Republicans are, are really fighting this idea of like, if your kid has a transgender competitor, and they lose to them, they they're telling people like, how would you feel as a parent if they stole your your child's scholarship, athletic scholarship, like this idea of oh, your kid sucks. (laughs) Someone else's kid was better. And like, now punish them by passing this anti trans legislation. Like there's this, there's this excuse, right being made for mediocrity and incompetence. I mean, it's not my fault.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's, I mean, that's kind of what that's what makes it ridiculous how much difference is there really between two eighth graders, whether they're boys or girls, right? Genetic or hormonal presentation is happening. They're both four feet tall, like (laughs) in playing basketball. This idea that, that the difference in pricing and quality of baby clothes between girls and boys is huge. Like the shorts are cut shorter, the like clothes are made of thinner things. And yeah, this idea that like the clothes are different. And then when he did research, he found out that it's basically a half ounce difference between like a one-year-old baby boy and a one-year-old baby girl. This idea that like the baby's girls clothes like run smaller sizes or are shorter cut as though babies are shaped different um, and they're not. Like, um, so I think it kind of just like, yes, like it goes into this idea of like, feeling like I or my child is more deserving of something than a child who is transgender. I wanna, I wanna cut back real quick to um, kind of what we were talking about. Cesar, you mentioned the high rate of depression and suicide among young children. And I think that that really is perhaps the biggest, scariest part of this entire debate to me, especially when we're talking about defining the access to care And this idea that parents who are trying to get care for their children can be labeled as abusive. I think this one is genuinely terrifying to consider because it sets up a a really intense precedent about how we talk about access to care and about the mental health of these children. Where's the line? Like, okay, I, I didn't sign my kid up for surgery, but I did sign them up for a support group. Is that enough to get me, is that enough to get my kids taken away from me? You know?
1: How are you then going to be able to address these issues as a medical professional in the way that you should without being able to give a certain diagnosis out of that? You know, like the we 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 can see it expressed in certain research that a lot of uh you know gender dysphoria is tied to that depression and anxiety and those suicidal ideations. So as a medical professional, are you not bound by oath, right? To be able to give uh, you know, your patient what it is that they need? And if what they need are puberty blockers, If what they need are estrogen and/or and testosterone. If, if what they need is a, a procedure that will affirm their gender identity, then why would you not do that? I think they're trying to do like they're fear-mongering, they're throwing all of this at us. It's information overload. It's overwhelming. And all they're trying to do is just see what sticks. They know this can set legal precedent later.
3: Countries where where abortion access isn't isn't easily isn't easily accessible, those women do anything that they can and they die from it all the time. The sort of the worst case scenario of like back alley medical care is very real in the US, in states like Texas, it's very real in other countries. Um, And to imagine what that equivalent is for a 14 year old kid is terrifying. To imagine what sort of desperate action will be necessary if healthcare providers aren't able to do what they have to do. As much as we want to hope that like a doctor will be better than that, we've seen from abortion that that's not the case. Like a lot of times doctors will just stop providing Abortion, because they don't want to lose their license. And so I think I agree that that one weighs very heavily, um, because we've already seen how dangerous this sort of legislation can be. And, you know, in Texas, it's not illegal to get an abortion, but it's damn hard. And it's scary. And those are grown women, most of the time, you know, unfortunately, uh, grown women trying to access the care that they need. So thinking about it, in the context of a child, um, or a context of a parent who's afraid of, of consequence, um, I think that's a really dark alley to be looking down.
1: I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> I'm so mad because now my nerves are shot. Like, times two. <laughs>
3: that's actually the end of the conversation because that was actually hard to say, and I don't want to talk about. It
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm like that. That that is so that is so true. How. Yeah, there are so many ways in which you can do like these, the equivalent of back alley abortions to back alley gender affirming care, you know, like where you're able to get like, you know, feminizing surgeries from that. You see the consequences of that as well, the infections that can that that can happen, Um, you know, the 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 in some cases death that can result from it, you know, and you're so you're so absolutely right. I hadn't even that hadn't even crossed my mind, honestly, until you mentioned that. Where that's so true. There's no limits. Like if they want to transition, if that yearning is still there, right? Like they will find a way.
3: It's it's scary, even like on that first level. Like one of the first things I think a lot, like you watch a lot of trans kids' experiences is like with binders and with like overlapping sports mm-hmm. bra. And there's so much content and you know, online media now that's like, hey, I get that you're going to hurt yourself. There's no, there's no safe, long-lasting way to do that. And we know that now. And still, right now, there are like 20 kids in San Antonio who are like, yeah, but if I don't do this, I'm going to hurt myself.
1: This is a difficult topic when charged with emotion. We encourage you to take tangible action against some of these anti-trans efforts from the Texas legislature. Talk to your children, your students, your family members, Write to your elected representatives, share accurate information on social media. Resources on gender identity, mental wellness, and suicide prevention can all help. If the time comes, join the march. There is something you can do, and we hope you find the same courage that LGBT youth do to pursue a course of action against homophobia and transphobia. One way you can also make your voice heard is through voting for those who carry out important decisions. Here's Sunny with more information.
3: Thank you so much, guys, for engaging in dialogue with us today. We've talked about a lot of big issues and small ones. If uh, this is something that's moved you, you should know that Bear County is currently open for early voting right now. Uh, the May 7th election is um, in early voting. That will be open until Tuesday, the 27th. So make sure you get out there. If you need to learn more about voting, check out vote411.org. There you can check your registration status and you can make a mock ballot. It's going to walk you through all of the races going on for your specific location. Right now we're talking about mayor. We're talking about local uh, San Antonio representatives for city council. We also have Five different school districts right now that are uh, doing elections for for their uh, trustees. So that's a big one, especially as we're talking about children and and their experiences in school. There's also some pretty essential propositions that you should maybe take a look at. No, no, uh, no judgment, no push, but. take take a peek, do your research, friends. So like I said, if you're looking for more information on that, check out vote411.org. If you're looking for more about trans legislation in particular, check out Equality Texas. Not only can you check out their bill tracker, but they also have a list of candidates running for offices across Texas that they've specifically endorsed. So check out, see if uh, anyone in your area is on that list. Make sure you check that box uh, when you go vote. Thank you guys so much for listening to us.
1: And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now, but we will see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk.